everyone. Welcome. It's time for a very special episode of Catalog and Cocktails presented by Data.World, your honest, no BS, uh, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management. And we have a very non-salesy thing to talk to you about today, something very interesting around technology innovation. It's around AI, and it's around actually some research that, uh, that we've been doing. Uh, and we've got some awesome guests here where we, we're seeing 3x better accuracy around large language models around Gen AI by using knowledge graphs. And so uh, I'm Tim Gasper, a longtime product guy, customer guy at Data.World, joined by Juan Cicada. Hey, Juan. Tim, how are you doing? It's a pleasure. We're doing this. We're recording this on Wednesday, the day before Thanksgiving. We're not live today, but uh, hey, we, we need to take a break. Um, but we're still recording some podcasts. Anyways, so... <laughs> Todd, I'm super excited that we've been have this possibility to go share the research that we've been doing. And my partner in crime here has been two with Dean Alamang and Brian Jacob. Brian couldn't join us today because he's he's all really on vacation. Uh, and Dean is joining us. Dean is uh, I've known Dean my entire career. He's the author of a very important book, Semantic Web for the Working Ontologist, and has been the Semantic Web and Knowledge Graph pioneer for decades. Dean. It is my pleasure to introduce you and have been working with you for so long. How are you doing? Great. Uh, and it's great to be here. And it's been a while since I've been on Catalog and Cocktails. And I'm really excited to be here because, you know, the, the work that we've been doing, well, is, is, is really exciting. I think it's uh, some of the most important work that I've done possibly in my whole career. I mean, this is, this is really important stuff. Yeah. yeah. This is really pushing the envelope here, uh, cutting edge and... Um, and it's it's just uh, trying to push the state of the art forward, which which I think is is incredible here. And not only that, it's really trying to understand what what's actually happening, understand what's going through the hype, and kind of figuring out the noise, the signal, and and and, this, and truly, it's like we're trying to be honest and no BS about this stuff. And 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 this is science, and <laughs> hence we're not salesy at all. Um, so I want to kind of give some feedback, some background about the research, and and the plan here is that. Uh, we actually are going to go through some questions that we got uh, through our yeah. Yeah, LinkedIn. So, so in a nutshell, what? Get some background, right? LLMs have changed the world in the last less, in the last year, basically, and obviously one of the the cool applications people are talking about is chatting with your data, right? Being able to go literally ask questions and have that interaction, just like we're doing with ChatGPT. Um, but uh, the entire infrastructure of kind of where people are setting things up is mainly around text. PDFs and stuff. And when it comes to like your structured relational data, your SQL databases, that has not been at the center. And when it and when it does kind of those conversations do come up, it's all about the text to SQL and how we can take in a question and, and generate SQL queries over that, which I recall everybody, text to SQL has been an area people have been studying for decades. I mean, just question answering itself in the area of computer science is probably half a century of work. So this isn't new, but LLMs have really accelerated. But what happens is that it's very obvious that people are looking at these examples and it's like, but that's an easy question over easy data. And I think there's that disconnect. So what happens is that we're, we've, we've been asking ourselves, how does it look like to do, to do this question answering, this natural language over your relational databases, but in an enterprise setting? So that is really the question. So we've actually, we asked ourselves two research questions. The number one is to what extent these large language models can accurately answer these natural language questions, enterprise questions over 
enterprise SQL databases. And when I mean enterprise questions, there are questions from like day-to-day -day reporting all the way to metrics and KPIs. And when I talk about enterprise SQL databases, I'm talking about stuff that represents hundreds of hundreds of tables in a particular domain. So these are the, the kinds of questions that you'd might ask in a report when you want to create a dashboard or something like that. Exactly. And then things that later on, you may not be able to go answer full in a report, but you need some extra information out of that. But the, the, the report is kind of there. So competitive clarification, Juan, that I'd like to bring in. I was at a content management conference two weeks ago. And one of the things that someone from content management is going to think about is I'm going to ask an LLM a question. It will give me an answer. And I want to point out in the architecture that Juan has been describing with um, your chat with your data and text to SQL, he's putting an extra step in between. You're asking a question that's being turned into a query that gets you the answer. Now, to those of us who are at Catalog and Cocktails and used to data and all this sort of stuff, we might consider that obvious. When you're at a content management conference, that's not obvious. The fact that you had a query is always something that you can turn to, feels a little bit techy, a little bit codey to a content manager, but it's really essential to understanding how it is that what content managers do, which is, <clears throat> cataloging can actually really improve how this goes. So I wanted to call that out because I know for this audience, they're gonna say, yeah, sure, text to SQL, text to Sparkle, we expect to create queries because the data audience. But in case we have any folks in the audience who aren't data oriented folks, like content managers, I just wanted to point that out. Okay, so back to you, Juan. That's an excellent point, I think, because I think also it helps us to get get outside of our bubble and also yeah. talk to other people. That conference was an eye-opener for me. I gave a keynote and I got a lot of great feedback, but I understood that it was a very different, well, many of the people in the room, it's a mixed room, many of the people in the room came at it from a very different perspective. And this helps me understand a lot of the questions that came in on LinkedIn as well. They're coming from a different perspective. And that's a particularly important perspective here because I think the content managers have been doing a lot of the work that's gonna be really important in making LLMs work in the future. But yep. I'm, I'm kind of uh, bearing the lead here. So I'm going to go back. No, no, this is good. This is, so what happened was around six, I mean, like four, five months, whatever, when we were in Vegas for the Snowflake, at the Snowflake Summit, it was, right, there's a big launch of LLMs and Snowflake and all that stuff. And then I'm starting to talk to a lot of people, users, customers, uh, and then product folks at, at Snowflake. And they're like, look, we get it semantics slot knowledge graphs this is this is needed but one it's not clear how that would actually work but the other thing is like it's not clear like how much it's actually going to improve like we feel it is going to improve but like how much so basically a lot of the product folks told us hey you guys should do a benchmark and to go and i'm like yeah we should and i'm like okay so what happens is that existing there are existing benchmarks of all these texts to SQL and stuff. But one of the things that they're very academic, right? There are on smaller data sets, right? They're just questions that are just a laundry list of questions. Um, and, and I think it's enterprise folks look at that them and, and, and they're like, that's this is really not representative of what the real world looks like. So hence exactly. the along those lines, Juan, the data sets they use are normalized you could actually tell what normal form they're in in my experience i've never encountered an enterprise data system that comes close to being analyzable in terms of normal forms it's a little bit of this a little bit of that and oh yeah we patched that on somewhere uh and, and it's that wild crazy space that to my mind is the real difference to yeah. an enterprise data set from the ones that you see in the textbooks so, so the, to that, the second question that we're asking ourselves is to what extent knowledge graphs actually improve that accuracy? 
And our, our hypothesis here is that if you have this large language model powered question answering system, right? Chat with a data system. And it answers these enterprise questions over a knowledge graph representation of your SQL database. And you compare that with a large language model question answering system that just asks the question directly over SQL without a knowledge graph, that the accuracy of, of the system that uses a knowledge graph is going to be higher than the one that it doesn't. Now, the question, remember, is to what extent? How much higher? That's what we don't know. Right. So what we did is that we defined this benchmark. It really has four parts into it. Right. It's a, one is this enterprise SQL schema that we're using. It actually comes from the OMG, a standards organization around property casualty datum uh, insurance. So that's a real world insurance model has been done. We came up with a set of questions on two on two spectrums. Um, they one is on the spectrum of, of how complex a question is easy questions being reporting hey show me how many claims there are all the way to metrics and kpis hey what is the loss total loss or what is the loss ratio and so forth and then also you want to have a complexity on the number of on the amount of the databases so do i need a couple of tables or do i need six seven eight nine tables to go answer this and then third was to have the actual context layer explicit to make the metadata the semantics explicit around this. So what is the ontology? What is that semantic layer? What are the mappings, the transforms that take that tar that source of the target, make this very explicit so we can build the knowledge graph with that. And then finally, there, there's a lot of the accuracy that we reuse from the existing benchmarks, namely the, the spider benchmark that comes from the folks at Yale University. So that's kind of the, 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 the framework that we have for the benchmark. And the results is Oh, one more thing. The bench, the, 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 the system that we did was very simple on purpose because we wanted to define a baseline, a very simple baseline. We used GPT-4 and we used a zero-shot prompt. The zero-shot prompt specifically is, given the SQL DDL, you copy and paste your text of your DDL, write the following question in SQL. And for the knowledge graph one is, given this OWL ontology, right? We're using the Semantic Web RDF standards here. Given this owl ontology internal syntax, you copy and paste it, write the Sparkle query for the following question. That was it. Very simple on purpose. So just by that, the results is that if the accuracy over all these questions that we did combined was 16% if you don't use a knowledge graph, and that increased to 54% if you use a knowledge graph. That, that's your 3x. And then if you have these different quadrants, if you think about like easy questions over easy data, um, that was 25% without knowledge graph and 70% with the knowledge graph. If you have kind of more complicated questions on easy data, smaller number of tables, that was 37% with SQL, no knowledge graph, and 67% with the knowledge graph. And then the moment you get into more complicated schemas, meaning actually if, the, if you required more than five tables, the accuracy without a knowledge graph was zero. And then with the knowledge graph, it was 35, 38%. So this is already kind of these results for me support the following claim, which is investing in knowledge graphs is going to improve the accuracy for your large language model uh, for, for any question answering systems. And basically, look, you to really succeed in this AI world that we're in now, you must treat your business context, your semantics, your metadata as a first class citizen. Knowledge graphs are a requirement for generative AI. That's the evidence we have. And that's what we shared last week. And I think what we wanted to go do is that I shared this post in Data World and, and on LinkedIn. And I am we're truly amazed with how this has been perceived.
uh, I, I think between I mean, there's over, yeah, I've just been blown away. And so many comments. Yeah, it's more comments and reactions than any LinkedIn post I've ever made. So yeah, it's, it's so, catching on. Tim, you're going to help us drive the next section here. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm, and before before we move forward, I want to make sure we're really, um, uh, you know, that that our audience here really understands kind of the implications of this. And and it's it's no surprise to me that this was very popular on LinkedIn because everybody you know sees what's happening with ChatGPT and with LLMs, and of course. Uh, you know, if you work in an organization, right, your thought process is, well, I want to use LLMs to tap into the knowledge and, and the data that we have in my own organization. Um, and how can we start to do that? And is it going to actually be helpful? So it's no wonder that there's a lot of interest here um, in terms of uh, in terms of leveraging this or taking this to the next level. Um, ju just to make sure that we're clear here on the results, what this means is that um, for both easy questions and hard questions, for easy schemas and complex schemas, providing and leveraging a knowledge graph makes the LLM uh, create more accurate queries. And it is especially impactful for the most complex queries and uh, the most complex questions and the most complex schemas, right? Definitely. And in, and in the case of uh, complex questions, complex schemas, uh, the text to SQL didn't work at all. Exactly. Yep. That, I think that's pretty incredible. So, you know, as, as we start to unpack this a little bit and what this means, I, I have one question for you guys. Like, what's the approach that you took here in terms of like openness and transparency, right? Can others extend this research? research? Can they unpack it? Could they, you know, leverage this benchmark as well? Absolutely. That's actually the point at the very beginning. It was sort of, you know, as we go through, we'll talk about this. But what, you know, the vision that Juan and I had when we were putting this together is that we would do very like what Spider, the fo Spider folks at Yale have done to build this benchmark, publish all the pieces of it, have our experiments where we did the results. But now we imagine that somebody from the text to SQL world would come in and say, no, 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 You're, you, the knowledge isn't the, the, the most useful thing. There's actually something you could do with an advanced um, ERD diagram. And in fact, we got exactly such a comment back. And, it, and we say, great, an advanced ER diagram would help a lot. Prove it. Here's the data. Here's our results. Your your turn, and we're not sitting here being defensive. And like, no, this is how we, as an industry, we as a scientific community, are going to figure out what on earth is going on here. Is it knowledge? Does knowledge have to be an owl? I kind of doubt that. Could knowledge be encoded in an ER diagram? Probably, but let's have someone try that. Or how about plain English? I'm just going to write a paragraph in plain English, and that's going to work just as well. That might be true. I don't know. But we really want to set up a community resource so that questions like that have empirical answers, not just speculation answers. Yeah. I mean, the plain text is especially interesting. I know a lot of comments are, are you know, wondering about, hey, how can, you know, uh, prompt engineering and passing other types of context actually take to the next, next level, which I think is some of where you all are thinking of taking this mm -hmm. next, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the thing that you can do empirically. It's no longer just, hey, I got a better idea and I'm going to go out and make my product and say that it's better. It's like, well, we can actually, as a group, test what's better. And then your your, your better product is the one that finds the sweet spot. Right. Now, this is great. It's uh, it's all about how we can uh, how we can push the the knowledge of the entire data community forward. 
So we're actually going to uh, leverage questions that um, were posted on LinkedIn and and through social networks here to drive kind of the next part of this uh, of, of this uh, uh, podcast interview here. Uh, and let's start actually with uh, Eunice L. Bragg, who asked some really good questions around architecture for this. So um, Eunice said, I'm currently working on the same topic to use knowledge graphs to improve the reasoning of LLM. And I'd like to ask a couple questions. So first of all, you know, the way to feed knowledge graph into LLMs um, does use any uh, specific tokenization technique or use top layer on the LLM to extract content such as knowledge extraction, deep KG LLM framework. So that's a little bit uh, uh, deep technical here, but I'm sure you can kind of unpack that. Or does it use uh, RAG, which is a, another sort of uh, architecture here, um, or uh, applying prompt engineering, which takes knowledge graph um, as a schema passed as the prompt. Um, so maybe you could unpack these terms yeah, yeah. a little bit and and what approach was taken here. So so as, as we said, as I was said, mentioning, we start on purpose with the most simple prompt engineer, right? And so you can you can imagine everything that you that we're doing here is a, a form of rad, right? So, but I think people are right retrieval now augmented generation. Yeah, exactly. Retrieval augmented generation. I think it, right now rag is a synonymous to like, oh, there's a vector database included. So there's no vector database included yet in these types of what we've done here. But I think what as, as Dean was saying, we want other people to go test up their approaches. So this in this case, the rag, the retrieval that you're doing is actually passing in already that context in of, of the of the schema or the ontology inside inside of the prompt. So um, so what we did was just prompt engineering. And as I mentioned, it's this very simple zero shot prompt. And again, that was done on purpose to figure out the baseline. We wanted the most simplest thing so we can know how we can improve it. Um, so now everything that Eunice is bringing up is like all of that should be tested, right? Should we have a very specific type of LLM that is specialized on knowledge graphs? Yes, somebody test that. There's all the, there's existing new uh, SQL foundational models that should be tested too, right? Uh, we also brought up that what happens if your their context layer is too big that it doesn't fit inside of your context window, right? I'm using the context word twice. Like your 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 semantics, your metadata, your ontology that's too big, it's not going to fit inside your context window. So you need to go be able to kind of pull it out from somewhere else, and you're probably going to pull it out from a vector database. Like how are you going to figure out what parts of that that needs to be figured out too? Again, we only did a zero shot prompt. Can we do improve that prompts? All of that needs to be tested. So at, at this moment, we're, we, we're again, we, the, the very basic prompt on purpose to get figure out the baseline. And now we can start seeing people saying, hey, I ran this benchmark again with this with this different type of prompt or and, and the, the, this is what we should be explicit about. And we're going to see how this accuracy can improve. So, so the way to think about this is that you know this is an actual scientific experiment. You control out certain variables to make sure that those aren't um, impacting your measurements. And in fact, the three variables that Eunice talks about here are three of them we, we, we quite explicitly thought factored out of this because you don't want to say, well, gee, you had a better prompt for this one than that, or you had a better LLM for this one than that, or this one uh, used some retrieval to, to do stuff. We know those things will make it better. And that's one of the reasons why the actual results are quite modest from a production point of view. I mean, anybody back in May 
I was playing around with the stuff and I got far better results than 50%. Why? Because I was playing around with all these variables and a whole bunch of more. And not only did I do that, basically I was at a conference in May and I saw two demos where people did that. And I was looking at a message from my colleague, Brian Jacob, the third author on this paper where he was doing that. Yeah. It, it Yes, you can obviously do better than this. We controlled out these variables on purpose. I know we said this before, but it's really, I think, the, the, the thing to understand about this work. We controlled out these variables and said, this one variable has a three to one. Invite you to control out everything. And a better ERD has a, how much? I don't know. Do the experiment. Um, a better prompt engineering could do and so on. And then the real interest, and I am repeating myself, but it's really important. How do we combine these together to find the sweet spot that gives you the, the best interaction of all of them? And so, yeah, these are three that we thought of. We did not do them, and that was on purpose. We invite Unis to go to our Git repository, pull down the data, put it into their system. So they're already working on it. Put this in the system and tell us how well do these things work at improving performance. Yeah, this is the scientific collaborative approach, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, I know the ultimate goal is we want to get to a hundred percent, right? And because if it doesn't know, we don't want it to hallucinate, right? That's yeah. the wrong thing, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so to put another way to think about this, right? Uh, Douglas Moore asked, you know, is it kind of is another way to think of this actually that like the LLM after using the knowledge graph, uh, or or let's just say it this way, the LLM is three times better at text to Sparkle than it is to text to SQL. You tipped our hand, Tim, when you mis misread that. <laughs> the real key here to rewrite that so that the answer is yes is the LLM along with a knowledge level mm -hmm. is three times better. Uh, is an LLM three times better at text to Sparkle than text to SQL? I've not done that experiment. If you did the exact same query in Sparkle and SQL, um, I would actually be surprised if you had that much because I think it's the knowledge where the leverage is coming from. So. Well, I would say, yes, Doug, Douglas, you're right. But with the clarification that Tim put in here, that the LLM equipped with knowledge described, in our case, in OWL, is three yeah. times better than text to SQL. I, I accidentally even added in the nuance that makes it a yes question. Yeah, you did. I mean, and how could you help but do it? I mean, you you, you tipped your hand there, Tim. And we know, we know that, that people are biased. And that's why you design experiments that try to get the bias out. And no one can ever get all the bias out. I mean, even just reading the question, your bias came up. And that's just human. That's not, hey, Tim, you made a mistake. That's just the way people work. That's why we do scientific methods. Well, it, it might actually be very interesting to see, you know, because I've heard people, especially who, you know, like and appreciate Sparkle, right? Mm -hmm. um, that uh, say things like Sparkle is a little bit closer to natural language than SQL is. And so I, I actually. Well, I'm, I'm one of those people. I would say Sparkle <laughs> is easier than SQL. Um, and, and there's the, the, the fabulous Lee Dodd's fabulous little article teaching RDF to a six year old. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's easy to teach this stuff to people who haven't been confused by all the, the sequel stuff, but that's a whole different topic. We won't talk about that today. <laughs> no so, worries. One thing I, one thing people ask a lot is like, why is this, why, why is this happening? Well, it's actually hard to explain the why, because we don't know what's going on inside yeah. of these things. We can always just speculate around this and maybe, and maybe we can, I mean, we can come up with different hypotheses and experiments to, to figure that out. A speculation I have is that because the graph and the way you model things, you're, you, you make the, the, the triple, right? The, the English sentence, right? The, the subject, the predicate, the object. The predicate is that relationship and you're making that explicit. 
while in SQL, you have if you're for example, if you're a foreign key represents that relationship and it is implicit. Like I don't know what the words are. So you have like the way you're making that relationship is by making sure that these two columns actually either they may be the same column name or you have to know that they reference different ones even though they have different column names. So they're not implicit. They're they're, they're implicit. So I suspect that the, the knowledge graph makes it gets higher accuracy because I'm making the language more explicit in, in how I'm designing the, the, the model here, the, the model in the sense of the data model, while in SQL, it's not explicit. And actually, Juan, in JSON, you have the same problem, the dual problem. You've got the name of the relationship, but no, no type necessarily of the of the other end. So there are two things you can have. How am I related to it and what is it? SQL's really good at the what is it? It's in a certain table. You gotta know what it is. JSON's really good at how am I related to it? It's got a field name. They don't have both. And an uh, owl and other knowledge representation languages go out of their way. Do both. I never thought about it that way. Interesting. Interesting. And, and and just to piggyback on what you said, Juan, like the example I thought in my head was like joining a customer table to an order table, right? Uh, in in SQL, that just might be join this key to that key. Uh, but uh, the actual verb that connects all of that is, you know, a customer made this order or purchased mm -hmm. this order, right? Yeah. yeah. And then I think things that you can go improve later on is like, well, how are different ways that people are describing this and so forth? So, and then you can talk about synonyms and you can add this. I mean, this is extra metadata, extra context you want to go add to it. But yeah, so context is important. Context is critical. And, um, you know, as we think about this number, right, this 54.2% number, um, JU, uh, Dr. JU here asks, um, great work. Question, is 54.2% considered state of the art? Um, is that practical for production usage? So, so, so a couple of things here. One is if you look at the, the, the large body of work from text to SQL and, and like, look at the Yale's, the spider benchmark. I mean, they're talking about in their benchmark, some accuracies of 90% and stuff. Yeah. Right? And it was like, oh, that's very high, high numbers out there. High numbers. But then yeah. again, then, but we're presenting another experiment where we're saying, well, well, if you're only doing SQL, it's really 16 and the knowledge graph is 54. So I think this is, this, this is the, with these results, people should be asking the questions of what's really going on because we're providing some different numbers. And this is, I mean, science is a social process. So we not we need more people to start asking more questions about what's going on. So I, I, my point is like, I think the state of the art is just changing. Like we think it's one thing, but maybe it's another. Uh, and, and I mean, we're not, we're, we don't, we're not in an agreement right now. So I think that whatever has been stated as a state of art, that is 90, it's not that it's lower. We're presenting this number of 54. We have the evidence to provide it. So it's probably, it's, it's 54 with the knowledge graph. Yeah. Now, the follow-up question, is it practical for production usage? This is a fantastic question and something that, that has come up multiple times with folks is like, is this good enough? Is this accurate enough for production? Mm -hmm. Well, what I got to ask is, what does accurate enough mean? I'm sure everybody's going to be tempted to say 100%. Mm -hmm. It has to be 100%. I can't use it. And, and, I, and so then two things come to mind. One is, for questions today, how are, how are they being answered today? And can you stand up and say, that's 100% accurate? Do we know? Do you feel comfortable saying that's 100% accurate? I don't know. 
Maybe you do, but maybe like, do you, somebody gave you a report and, and you're trusting that person who gave you that report. And does that person know how that was reported? Like you, like you ask Sally, Hey Sally, how many sales did we have last month? And she says, $500,000. Yeah, like, exactly. How did Sally figure that out? This is why we have provenance in data catalogs. It's why we have provenance in all sorts of systems. Gee, I got this report, and maybe Sally made a perfectly sensible computation based upon the wrong table. Or Or based on assumption that someone else gave her. Yeah, you have a whole chain of of, uh, provenance that is how you get your trust. So I think th- this is one of the things we need to go ask ourselves. Now, I obviously we're obviously not comfortable. 54% no, this needs to be higher. Remember that it's by different quadrants, it's differently. So I so the other thing that we need to think about is that LLMs, we need to strive for them to be accurate, but also if LLMs and this generative AI technology is making us more productive. So what we really need to go figure out and work on, which is stuff that we're doing next in the lab, is understand when I can't answer a question. So if like, hey, I know very, very high accuracy that this is going to be correct. You can trust this. Well, there's some other questions where I say, you know what? I don't know. I'm not going to even tell you an answer. I'm going to tell you I don't know. So I think those are things that we should start looking at. And, and that's how we make the progress about how this can be usable. So it's again, it's not just always a binary thing. I think also what you need to think about is that, is that we're like, L, you give the element input, you expect the final output, and you're done. Like, no, there's more pieces of the puzzle there when you start thinking about it. Yeah. Dean and Juan, what what do you think is, you know, just quickly, what do you hypothesize are the things that are going to drive this the fastest towards 100%? Maybe starting with you, Dean. Oh, there's sort of the, some low-hanging fruit. And Juan and I actually had a meeting about this. And they're basically the same ones that Eunice talked about, or at least two of them are. Um, well, prompt engineering um, is, is pretty straightforward. And actually, one that Eunice didn't mention, I realize now, is um, multi-shot. Um, mm-hmm. So... For example, an awful lot of the errors happened because the dialects of well, SQL is actually this a bit harder. Um, there's lots of different dialects of SQL, even though Sparkle is a standard. Some of the um, utility functions, like differences between dates and times, are not standard. And often the LLM guessed the wrong one. This isn't even hallucinating. It just said, well, I know three or four ways to do this. I don't know which one you're doing. This seems popular or something. Yeah. Right? So, you, way to do it. so you could prompt engineer that away saying, here's my dialect and giving us some stuff. But now you're you're filling up your chat window. So you have to get to some rag to be able to deal with that. Or one of the, in that particular case, both of the query engines we're using gave very detailed error messages back. Both of them said, you said date diff. Did you mean XSD colon diff date or whatever the, the one that it uses is? And that's actually pretty good at figuring out what you what you meant by it. And that kind of a sentence for a second shot, that actually might even close the gap between SQL and Sparkle in our examples, because SQL actually suffered from this more because it's not standardized. And so this helps you get over the fact that it's not standardized. This is why we're doing experiments. I just speculated something. I have no idea really if that's right or not. But um, so, but that's clearly going to bring both numbers way up. And then prompt engineering, do some more. Um, yeah, so yeah, Eunice talked about a handful of, of these things. Uh, those are what I consider the low hanging fruit. Um, we might have to start getting some real combinations of these things where you fine tune an LLM. Personally, I think fine tuning an LLM is probably going to have less bang for the buck than the other ones. But again, <laughs> I, I, I'm really just speculating here. But my um, lowest hanging fruit ones are multi-shot, 
uh, prompt engineering. And then RAG is not going to be better uh, accuracy. It's going to be better scale. Uh, what happens when your enterprise data set is really, really large? You need it up. If I were to bring in an ontology like FIVO, the financial industry business ontology, I can't fit that into mm. a single prompt window. Um, even the the new expanded prompt windows that came out a couple of weeks ago, I was trying to, to squeeze FIBO down into a small enough piece. There's only I so much context you can shove into the window. Only right? so much. And that's where you've got to go to some technique like RAG. And even though the, we, you don't know, is like if you add more context, more space, like how accurate that's going to change. Can it, can it actually use it? Yeah. I, mean, I know that the way me as a human, if you say, oh, sure, Dean, here is boom, an encyclopedia um, now in the same amount of time, answer the questions. It's like, <laughs> ah, could you possibly give me a better index on this encyclopedia? And that's exactly what RAG does. So yeah, um, I, I, there's going to be a diminished returns at some point, but to my mind, multi-shot and, uh, prompt engineering are probably your two lowest hanging fruit. Well, first of all, they're very, very easy to try, but I also mm -hmm. think they're going to be a, a good bang for your buck. And I think also, uh, some just good old fashioned static analysis. There's a lot of just like basic techniques and mm -hmm. computational techniques to be used on this. So uh, again, we just have a baseline and now it's time to go improve it. And let's go, let's, let's, the entire community should be working on this and go improve this. Love it. Juan, anything you'd add to, to what uh, Dean said? Nope, that was it. That's All right. No, I think that's great. I'm looking forward to seeing the next iteration of experimentation here. Um, Ryan Dolly asks what's the difference between you know knowledge graph and semantic layer it seems like people are kind of tripping up a lot of people talking about semantic layer lately what do you guys think about that so so my quick one i'll pass on the dean so the honest no bs thing here is that the semantic layer is the ontology that's it right we're just it's just it's an ontology i think we're using the word semantic layer it's getting popularized through marketing from like folks like dbt uh the semantic layer thing coming in from like the old the the, the business objects and stuff it is really just an ontology, a representation of knowledge and something that is more connected to the business. Uh, that's what it is. Uh, so I, I, I now use the word ontology and semantic layer interchangeably. And the knowledge graph is the is both. It's the semantic layer plus the data in the knowledge graph. That data is represented as a graph. It can be physically represented as a graph or it can be virtualized. And then actually the experiments that we did, it was virtualized. So the data was still in your in a in SQL. And the knowledge graph was virtualized. So even though we're talking about graphs, that graph was later then translated to, to, to SQL. And that's just kind of the standard graph virtualization, semantic graph virtualization technology. All right. So ontology, semantic layer, same shit. Dean, yeah, right? yeah, pretty much. Um, of course, I've been using different words for this for ages. At one point, actually, I think in even this podcast, I used the word knowledge level, which goes all the way back to Newell's seminal work back in the 80s where then that's how we talked about it back it's kind of funny we're going full circle we had knowledge level then we went through semantic uh uh yeah. semantic that's knowledge level semantic web and that's of course where uh i've done a lot of my work and then we started to have the knowledge graph and now we're talking about the knowledge graph being split into a semantic layer and a data layer and we i feel like uh, pretty soon we're going to be back to alan newell again and talk about the knowledge level and, and actually one thing is kind of funny with that sort of history you know, there was a thing he called the knowledge level hypothesis, which nowadays, in some sense, it's what we're testing here. That the hypothesis was there actually is something useful to say above the structure and the content of your information. We're not even going to talk about data yet, just information. And that was quite controversial when he wrote about it back in the 70s or 80s. And in some sense, here we are 
70, 80, 90, 100, how many decades later? And we've got an experiment where we now have a specific definition of what Newell's knowledge level was. We're actually calling it a semantic layer now as part of a knowledge graph. And we're actually in a position to run an experiment to say, not just does the knowledge level exist, which is what the hypothesis was, but just how useful is it? So that, I tend to use the words very much the way Juan is using that the, the knowledge or the semantic layer is the ontology or ontologies and maybe the mappings. And then the data layer is, well, your data, put that all together into a system that actually answers questions. And that's a knowledge graph. So we're really just tripping up on semantics here. Wow. Like. <laughs> well, I had for every time someone said that to me, I'd have retired by now. <laughs> Listeners, keep listening. I'm sorry for the joke. Um, all right. <laughs> So uh, the next questions I actually want to combine together because I actually, I actually think they're related um, around. So the first question from Patrick Jacqueline is, did you have to design and define the ontology first for the knowledge graph? So we were just talking about the semantic layer ontology is right. Do you have to design it up front? And then the second question here is actually from Michelle Curie, where she asks, uh, you know, where does the knowledge come from? The knowledge graph exists outside of any specific to uh, technology is the knowledge architecture of, uh, it is the knowledge architecture of everything that it, uh, a dominant encompasses, some of which may never have been captured electronically before. How would an LLM include that which has not been captured electronically? So do you have to design the knowledge? Where does the knowledge come from? So my, the whole point of the of this study the, the, the conclusion of the study is that by investing in building your knowledge graph, by investing in creating the ontology, by investing in figuring out where that knowledge comes from, you are going to increase the accuracy of these LLMs. So yes, you have to go invest and go build that. Because if you don't invest and you don't build that stuff, you won't have you won't have the accuracy. So which now, seems a little obvious almost, right? Well, I yeah, yes, yeah, yes, because it's extra context, right? right? So basically we're saying, oh, if I give more context to the LLM, will it do better? Like, of course it will. So yeah, all we're doing is building that context. Now, where does that context come from? I mean, I think the traditional RAG architecture with vector databases, it's just like text. But here we're saying we actually invested in giving it much more structure, right? Giving it the semantics and meaning of this, and we see the accuracy increase. I mean, another experiment, as Dean was mentioned before, is like maybe we don't do any of the knowledge and we just give it a bunch of more text, and maybe maybe that can improve. We don't know. Things we should go try. Now, the 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 whole point here is that we really want to go do that investment. The next question is, how can I reduce that investment? Uh, and guess what? Probably going to use LLMs for that too, right? So how do how do I make knowledge engineering as fast and easy as possible? Exactly. So right now, I think the the big point I want everybody to take is, damn, I need to invest in knowledge graphs. I need to invest in metadata and invest in semantics. That's that's what I want people to think about. Now, once you get that central, get that in your brain, and you need to go do that. You can people this 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 work is evidence. You need to go do do that. The next question should be, okay, great, let's go invest in it. Can we make it cheaper? And like, then we go, then that's, that's the next step. And yeah, we're going to use LLMs to make that cheaper. So actually just one year ago, and I was looking up, um, well, Juan was speaking to see if it was possibly exactly one year ago. And I couldn't quite find, find the right email. <clears throat> I was doing a proof of concept with one of our customers building a knowledge graph. 
And the value proposition one year ago, and it's interesting to say just one year ago was, if you make this investment to build a knowledge layer or semantic layer over top of your data and do the mappings, that you will be able to query your data from the business level. You'll be able to unify data from lots of different resources and, and build a, a data mesh um, on top of this. And all of these things are advantages you will get by making this investment, and it is therefore worthwhile. And I, I just love the quote from my customer who actually made that investment. And he said, at the beginning of this project, I was dating Knowledge Graph, making this, this little uh, analogy to romance, says, now I'm falling in love with Knowledge Graph. And that's when he had an actual business rule he wanted to express in any query language. And he'd done all those mappings. And the query was, well, you want to know the total cost of something. X has part Y, Y has cost Z, some Z group by X. Yes. That's exactly how it is in the business. Yeah. yeah, but what about all the different kinds of parts and all the different ways the prices are represented and all the different sources I have of this? Yeah, you did that work in the past week. That's what that mapping was for. And bam. Now, we thought that was enough value. We, the whole knowledge graph community and the whole data mesh community, thought that value is enough to pay back your effort. Now, one year later, that seems like such a, a drop of value compared to the bathtub of value that we're getting with the chat with your data. And that's in some sense what this experiment is saying, just how much more, you know, yes, it was pretty good to start with and it's even better now. Are, are we gonna be able to use, you know, LLMs to mine our knowledge better? I know a lot of people are trying to experiment it on, you know, unstructured documents and, you know, feeding your wiki into LLMs and things like that. Um, you know, catalogs, catalogs are a place where a lot of this lives. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts or comments on on where this knowledge can kind of be mined or extracted. I mean, so first of all, you gotta, you already have your, all the work that you're doing, your technical metadata catalog, like all of that is, is context you want to go use. And then you really want to be able to kind of extract things very quickly from people's heads. So this like ask somebody a question and just bring them, just, I mean, record it, tech, whatever. And then I, now I have all that and I can use an LLM to say, hey, here's all this input that you have, generate an ontology, a semantic layer for me. And let me go present it to, let me go look about it. So I think one of the things that we're working on already is how do we use, how do we go through these knowledge engineering, ontology engineering tasks and accelerate that using LLMs? That's stuff that we're working on actively right now. I'm really excited about what we're going to go do uh, with it next. Well, and a, a kooky idea that, that I think um, is, is going to be really interesting going forward, but we're not really in a place to try it yet. Uh, my good friend, Elisa Kendall, along with Deb McGinnis, wrote a book about two years ago on ontology engineering. And again, you know, this is pre-LLM and they are trying to make a methodology of building these ontologies and connecting them off to data using a lot of Elisa's industrial experience and Deb's uh, academic uh, uh, theory and bringing it all together. And it's a wonderful book. But one of the things that as a practice it lacks is how do you know how well you have done? How you've built an ontology. Did you do better than you did last week? Did you do better than your competitor who is who is also trying to build an ontology? How, how can you tell? And you know, they have a couple of metrics in there, but they're kind of you know, not, not very easy to measure quantitatively. Well, now we actually have one. Drop your 
ontology into a, a chat with your data system, do the mappings and measure its performance. We now have a way to say this ontology is better than that one. And now my design process can take that into account. Now, as, as a community, we aren't there yet, but that's one of the implications of this work that I'm kind of really excited about, <laughs> that you know, this could really turn ontology engineering from this sort of methodological, Elisa and Deb turned it from a sort of art into a methodological craft. Can we now turn it into a science? And I think we can, and I'm really excited about that. Yeah, no, this is, this is exciting. Um, you know, we hit it a little bit in our previous uh, question exchange here around, you know, uh, what's obvious about uh, about the research that's been done here. Dan Everett said, intuitively, it seems obvious, but it's always good to have empirical evidence in terms of the approach here, right? Uh, Graham Beresford mentioned, hmm, isn't that to be expected? Surely a SQL database does not name the relationships between tables, whereas knowledge graph does. So the that's what we talked about a few on. minutes ago. Yeah. 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 So Dean, what are your what are your final thoughts on this topic? Well, so the thing about you know, the obviousness of science, I'm reminded of a mathematics professor that I had well, when I was an undergraduate. <clears throat> he would have us go up to the chalkboard and prove something. And at some step, he'd stop us and say, why is that true? And the student would say, well, it's obvious. Now, rather than challenging whether it was obvious, he would just say, yes, it is obvious. But is it true? And, you know, and you know, this seems like he's just being, you know, a word I shouldn't say in a podcast. And that's <laughs> yeah. how I felt when I was up at the chalkboard. It's like, you. But then looking back decades later, it's like, boy, did he do me a favor. He taught me how to introspect and challenge things that I just naturally know. And you actually see this in science all the time. I don't know how many times the social networking, gee, there's a study that says that chiropractic actually works. Well, I knew that. Actually talk to a chiropractor who's thrilled to see that what they already knew, what all their patients know, has actually got some scientific backing. So just because something is obvious doesn't mean you don't have to prove it. And in fact, as my professor taught me, sometimes that's exactly when you do have to prove it. And I think Dan gets this. He says it's always good to have empirical evidence. Actually, I'm, I'm going to ump that up. Um, you need empirical evidence because just because it's obvious, it might not be true. Yep. No, I, I love that. I mean, I just think about, you know, uh, the famous experiment dropping two objects. Does uh, gravity accelerate them at the same rate? Mm -hmm. Probably yeah. people were pretty obviously sure it was true, but it's a good thing we confirmed and we build upon that. Right. Um, hey, let's uh, let's bring this to a wrap here. Uh, closing messages and final thoughts for our audience. Dean, why don't you kick us off? Okay, so the thing that I really want to make sure that you know, if, you've had, if you've been just you know, listening with half an ear until now, that this isn't our state-of-the-art best we can do. It's an experiment, a controlled experiment, where we are controlling out a whole bunch of factors, and in particular, things like prompt engineering, multi-shot, RAG, uh, customly trained LLMs, all the things that Eunice talked about at the beginning. We've controlled those out, and we are saying how much bang for the buck do we get from knowledge that's the question we're answering but this framework can answer that same question for anything else that you think is valuable and that is what i think is important about this that we're starting a scientific community that can measure all those things and help us understand how knowledge and llms work together well said dean juan what about you take us home 
so I think generative AI has been showing already as, as a fact the level of productivity that we're that we're that the world is is receiving now. So if you want to have that productivity in your enterprise, um, you need large language models, generative AI, and you need knowledge graphs. Knowledge graphs is a requirement for generative AI, and it's all about productivity and and precision. I think um, invest in knowledge graphs. Right. Otherwise, you're going to go fail at these generative AI applications. And so invest in your metadata, invest in your semantics and your business. You need to make this first class citizens. That's what it seems like a, a stack is forming here. Right. LLM plus where appropriate vector database mm -hmm. plus knowledge graph plus your catalog. Mm -hmm. And then you have all your data, all your sources, here we go. data. Juan, Dean, I think this was hugely informative. I think our, our listeners are very eager to see where this goes next. If folks want to learn more about the research, uh, understand the metrics more, maybe consume the actual research paper itself, where should they go? Uh, we're, we just started a, 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 our blog on Medium. So you can just go to, I think it's uh, medium uh, slash data dot world, write out data dot dot world. Dot data dot world. And then you can find it or just follow us on LinkedIn and we'll always be sharing this or on Twitter or X, whatever. Um, yeah, follow us there. And we'll be, uh, we're going to have a blog series about, about all this benchmark and then the next work we're doing in the AI lab. Awesome. Thank you, Juan. Thank you, Dean. Uh, listeners, hope you have a great Thanksgiving and stay tuned next week to another episode of Cataloging Cocktails. All right. Thank sure. you, Tim. Bye, everybody. Bye.